kids that might want one of them bags too in here. <laughs> All right, well, the children begin to leave, and Sheila passes out some of those last remaining gifts. We are going to today end our four-week series. The series, you might remember, is purely intended in a rather unique fashion to prepare our hearts for this Friday, which is Christmas. We have been going through several attributes that we find of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we go further and find one more. We're going to find it written in Matthew chapter 16. So if your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Matthew 16. We're going to be looking today at verses 13 through 20. But while you're doing that, let me give you a refresher because in previous weeks, we have discussed three. There's many wonderful attributes and characteristics of our Lord. Probably too many to cover in a matter of a couple of weeks. But a couple we have covered, first and foremost, was his perfection. We looked in Hebrews chapter 12. We found out that Jesus truly is perfect in every possible way. And he sets the example for us through his perfect life that he lived. We, in the second week, went to Colossians chapter 1 and had the attribute, the characteristic of supremacy. Jesus is indeed holding all things in control. He is sovereign. He is supreme. Last week, we ventured into Philippians, and we found and discussed that Jesus is the model of humility. There are other models to be able to see in life of humility, but no one models humility better than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If no other way, we see that he took our place on the cross, a humiliating death on the cross. Yes, he is the model of humility. So in each of those characteristics of the previous weeks that we have mentioned, each week as we talked about those characteristics, I mentioned one by one each week that that was the most important or the most outstanding characteristic about our Lord. When it came to perfection, as the perfection is the most important characteristic. The second week we venture back into supremacy, as the supremacy is the most outstanding characteristic of Jesus. Last week again, I said humility is personified by Jesus and then is his most distinguishing characteristic. So this week, we go four in a row and we find again that this is another outstanding characteristic of Jesus. But this is the most important of any that we've talked about, dismiss all the others. Today is the most important characteristic. Why? Because the attribute we talk about today, truly, truly only Jesus can possess. Why is it that only Jesus can possess this characteristic? Because it is the fact. It's not a claim. It is a fact that he is the Son of God, the only Son of God. Or as Peter states in the text we look at today in Matthew 16, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And indeed he is. No one, no one can ever make such a claim. It is only Jesus that can say he is the Son of God. So we celebrate his birth. It's Friday, and today we prepare our hearts then for the celebration by looking into Matthew chapter 16. Again, we're looking at verses 13 through 20. 
So stand with me this morning as we stand to honor the reading of the word, if you're able to stand. And we read then Matthew's words, with red being the words of Jesus, in chapters 13, or chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Well, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, Lord, we come again before you this morning, just thanking you again for the blessing of this wonderful day. And of everybody gathered here today, Lord, we aim to please you. And so I pray now, Lord, the words that be said today would truly prepare our hearts for a very special birth that we celebrate each and every December. On the 25th, Lord, we recognize your birth. And we see truly you are the Son of God. So, Lord, today let's be appreciative, be thankful, and turn our hearts now to hear your word you chose of us to have today. Thank you, Lord, for what's going to happen here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in everyone's life there comes a day. There comes a time there comes sometimes a single hour of a vitally important moment, maybe a life-critical changing decision that happens to each and every one of us. It's called really a defining moment. And for some people, that can change or alter your entire life. That life-changing moment occurs to everyone at some point. For some people, it may have been when you went into college or maybe chose a particular career to focus upon. For others, it may have been when you got married or began to have children. But for the disciples, it occurs in the text that we read this morning at this time, at this moment. More specifically, it occurs when Jesus then takes the twelve, he takes his men, he takes the disciples on the road to the northern region, the northern area known as Caesarea Philippi. Now, let us set the context of what's happening as we've read the text. At this particular point, if you just pick up the Bible and begin to read the New Testament, starting the course with Matthew, then you begin to read through the first couple of chapters into chapter 16, and you've already gleaned a lot. I mean, by this time, you've already the reader has already understood and read about the virgin birth, which is talked about in Matthew chapter 2, or John the Baptist coming and preceding the Messiah. We even read further about Jesus' election of the twelve. We give information given to us of his wisdom in Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. 
And we read constantly in all the chapters and all the words in Matthew's gospel of his miracles. But it also comes a time as you're reading through the gospel of Matthew, as you come to the 16th chapter, you've learned about rising opposition that he is facing. In his ministry, while he's on earth, he faces a lot of criticism, a lot of opposition from the Jewish leaders. So then as we learn that, we see now in chapter 16, that prompts him at this particular moment, this juncture of his ministry, to travel away from the Sea of Galilee and to travel north with his twelve, with the men, to a city named Paneus. The city is called Caesarea Philippi, as we read it in the text. Initially, it was Paneus, which means that it was a center of worship for the Greek god named Pan. They've renamed it Caesarea Philippi, because Philip is now the Tetrarch in that area, and he named it somewhat after himself, and of course, Augustus Caesar. Came up with Caesarea Philippi. But it's interesting then, as we learn this, that Matthew does not tell us exactly why they've left. I mean, we're imagining it's probably because of the growing opposition in the ministry of Jesus while he's on earth by those Jewish leaders. But Matthew doesn't disclose that. I mean, it's not hard to imagine, though, that Jesus takes an opportunity to go away from the opposition, the chaotic stuff happened in Jerusalem, from the Sea of Galilee, and to have some quiet alone time with his disciples. Now, I want you to understand, as he went away from the Sea of Galilee into this quiet, reserved area in Caesarea Philippi, it's not some casual walk across the street. It's not like he's going in some new neighborhood and taking a look around. He and the disciples are traveling 30 miles north in a more remote area. So Jesus is taking his disciples into this area and into the area where they've got this worship that his pagan god Pan and assembles his disciples because it's lesson time again. To get away from all the confusion, all the stuff that's happening that sometimes interrupts them. He, he has another lesson he wants his disciples to learn. I mean, in essence, school is back in session for them, if it ever stopped. So he takes them to this area. He's going to teach them some more wisdom. And he begins the wisdom. He begins to teach them by asking them two vitally important questions. And the two questions we talk about today, the two questions, of course, are this. Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And each of those questions recognize how it could be a defining moment for those who are the people, for the people's answer, we're going to find they really don't know Jesus, which then is a defining moment for them, the fact they're going to be living a life without Christ. For the disciples, for you and me, we're going to find that we know Christ, which then also should be a life-changing moment for us and something that we should treasure and, of course, define our life. A life-defining moment, regardless of which question is being asked. Who do the people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? So we take the questions one at a time. Of course, the first one is who do people say that I am, written in verse 13. 
Now, notice on the surface, this seems like a pretty good question. I mean, I've often wondered in my life, 57 years of age, who people might say that I am. Now, I don't say that in a way to sound arrogant or shallow or conceited, but there's times, honestly, where I've lived thinking, I wonder what that person is thinking about me and what they say about me and who they think I am. In a prior life, of course, knowing that I was not always in ministry, I was a plant manager. As a plant manager living in Dexter, Missouri, working for Tyson Foods. Now, as a plant manager, I wasn't always the warm, friendly, good-looking guy you're seeing right now. Okay? I was described as cute earlier, and I think that's appropriate. But I wasn't always having this warm, friendly disposition that you see about me every Sunday morning. I mean, when I was a plant manager, there were days I was very direct, highly impatient. And at times, perhaps, I could be described, people talking about me a little bit mean. I know you don't see none of that now, right? But that was who I was at one time. In, in fact, I recall while living in Dexter in that plant, I managed a further processing plant that was in charge of the fully cooked operation. And we were having an assignment. We had this production schedule given to us that was requiring that we have to have one million pounds of teriyaki chicken breast fillets for Walmart before Christmas. I mean, they were going to have this big campaign that required, in order to meet the production, we we're going to have to work seven days a week seven weeks in a row. So for 49 days, we're working every day, nonstop, morning, afternoon, night, evenings, whatever you want to say. It's all the time. And when you start working all the time for 49 straight days, there is some times when you have fatigue to set in. There is times when you have irritability to set in. I mean, there, there's times when the frustration begins to mount. Remember, I'm highly impatient. So frustration begins to mount itself because we're on pressure that we have to have the production schedule completed and done before Christmas. We even work on Christmas Eve. So frustration begins to mount as we get closer and closer to the production schedule that we had to have for a million pounds. I have an oven operator. It's fully cooked chicken oven operator named Donna. And Donna does a wonderful job. I mean, she's really good at what she does on and she excelled at it for the most part. I mean, she, she would not only fire the oven every morning, get it up to temperature, get it ready. She would maintain all the things pertaining to the oven, check the temperature of the product coming out. Did a wonderful job. But part of her responsibility also was to make sure that the teriyaki glaze that had to go on the chicken fillets once it came out of the oven before it went in the freezer, it could not run dry. It had to remain full. Well, I don't know what she was doing one day, but it ran dry. It got it ran empty, and there was no teriyaki going on the chicken. And I seen it, and I got hot. I mean, I got pretty mad about it. So I went to Donna. I said, what is this? We have downtime. We have chicken. We're going to have to redo this. This is not done right. I might have been a little more harsh than that. Because after I started talking to Donna for a while, she began to cry. I'm thinking, well, that didn't go so good. I made the girl cry. So as we made her cry, I'm thinking, I wonder what she's thinking about me now. I didn't ask. I didn't want to know. 
But I've lived times in my life where I have been curious what people thought about me. Kind of like if you watch Friends. A lot of people like to watch Friends. And if you watch Friends, you know there's Chandler and there's Phoebe and Rachel and all the others. But it comes a time in one of the episodes where Chandler, no one knows exactly what Chandler does for a living, but he's at work and he gets a promotion. And as he gets a promotion, he hires Phoebe to go into the workplace. And as Chandler then is doing the things that he does, we notices that the other people are mocking him. They're imitating him. He says something to Phoebe. They said, oh, they just know how you are. And he says, well, what do the people say about me? I mean, he's curious. What do the people say about me? Who do they think I am? So here's Jesus. All of a sudden, taking the disciples 30 miles north of Caesarea Philippi, and he's asking disciples now, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, mind you, rather quickly, he's not asking because he's worried or concerned about what people are saying. Not like myself or Chandler. He's not like that at all. He doesn't have any ego. He's not about trying to get information about what people are saying. He's simply asking his disciples at this moment, as he takes them away from the Sea of Galilee, what people are saying. Not about he's worried about what they're saying. It's the defining moment for them. Remember, school is in session for the disciples. He's going to have something to teach them. So he asked them because he wants them to say the answer. He wants to hear it from them. What do the people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say I am? And look how they answer verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. I mean, what an interesting answer then the disciples give to him. I mean, think about this for a moment. Does Jesus really not know what people may be saying who he is? And recall that Jesus knows. When Jesus was selecting Nathaniel to be his disciple, in John chapter 1, it tells us how it how occurred. He says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Well, Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We must remember, this is God incarnate. This is God in flesh. And that does not make him, just because now he's man, does not make him any less God. That's the unique thing about Jesus. He's fully man and fully God, so he's still all-knowing. He is fully aware of who people are saying that he is. This doesn't take him by surprise. When disciples answer, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, it doesn't take him by surprise. He knows because he's all-knowing, because he's God. But he's asking the question to the disciples at this moment, who do people say the Son of Man is? Because he wants them to tell him. He wants to hear it from their lips. And so, of course, they tell him what they know, what they've been hearing. Look at the options again of what they hear, what they know. Some say you're John the Baptist. I'm thinking John the Baptist, really? People that time thought Jesus was John the Baptist? Really? 
I mean, the way I read the scriptures, John the Baptist has been dead for quite some time. We must remember that he had been beheaded by Herod. In case you don't know all the details, you can read about it later in Matthew 14. But John the Baptist had been very critical of Herod for divorcing his wife and marrying his niece. So to appease his wife, as John had been critical of the new marriage, he places John in prison. However, his wife, which is named Herodias, she'd rather see John dead, not just placed in prison. So one particular evening, while Herodias' daughter is dancing and entertaining the king, Herod, he was so pleased that he told her daughter, ask me anything and it shall be given to you. Well, she goes and consults with mama and says, mama, what should I say I need because the king's going to give me anything? Well, Herodias thinks, well, there's nothing better than having John the Baptist's head on a platter. So Herod takes John the Baptist and beheads him. He's dead. John the Baptist, really? I mean, in order for one to even ponder the thought of how John the Baptist, I mean, how Jesus could be John the Baptist, I mean, it required that somehow he'd been reincarnated or, or, or somehow that he came back from the dead and was living then in Jesus' body. Which, by the way, Herod truly thought was possible. Herod believed that that was a possibility, truly, that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Now, it may seem silly to us that maybe Herod believed that, but it was a common belief at that particular time that people could be reincarnated and come back from the dead. In fact, that belief still exists today in certain areas. Seven years ago, I went to Thailand and traveled there as a 21-day missionary to be able to witness to people, particularly Buddhists and people who were Muslim. But it was common to walk into one of these beautifully adorned temples, the Buddhist temples, and see a monk sitting there and entertaining some people and talking to them. And we sometimes we exchange conversation with one of the monks and begin to learn pretty quickly that they have been taught and they firmly believed that how you lived your life currently could depend on your next life. That as you died, you would come back and be reincarnated for something else. So they, they firmly believed this, that if you lived a horrible life, not doing well to others, then you might, as you die, come back as like a pig. Or they believed that if you lived a good life, helping others, doing good things, you might, when you die, come back as a prince. That's what they believed, that you could be reincarnated. And Herod believed that. And apparently some others must have believed that. Because they're thinking Jesus could be John the Baptist, who is dead. But look further. I mean, not only John the Baptist, say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. I mean, here again, that required that Jesus was one of the Old Testament prophets, some of them by name here, but could also have been somebody like Moses but they had risen from the dead and their soul somehow placed in the body of our Lord. Except for maybe Elijah, because, you know, Elijah never died. You know, Elijah then, whenever he was taken up by whirlwind, the details recorded in 2 Kings chapter 2, never died. 
But the interesting thing about Elijah is that he's noteworthy because many Jews of that time, and even still Jews of today, believe that God would send an anointed king, but that the king would be preceded by the coming again of Elijah. That the king then would free Israel at that particular time from Roman oppression, but he would be preceded by Elijah. The roots of that thought is planted in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. In essence, that did happen, but it wasn't Elijah literally. Ironically, it was John the Baptist, which is who they think he could be. But all that is noteworthy because Jesus is not, we know this, Jesus is not John the Baptist. He is not Elijah. He is not Jeremiah. He is not one of the prophets. We know this. And obviously, Jesus himself knew who he was. But yet again, he asked his disciples as he takes them to Caesarea Philippi, who do people say the Son of Man is? He wants the disciples to express and to give him from their own lips, from their own mouth, who people say he is. Who is the Son of Man? By the way, the Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite ways to describe himself. Michael Wilkins, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, suggests that Jesus used the Son of Man as a title to reveal his true identity and mission. He come to save be a fully God and fully man. But the question that Jesus put before his disciples is once again, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they answered what they had heard. People say. I think it's interesting that the disciples answered the manner in which they did. I mean, basically, they're suggesting that people are saying he's a prophet. Basically, the disciples report the general reaction of the population of the people, which tells us a good deal about the way Jesus was perceived by the people at that time. The people at large, giving information back to the disciples that they overheard, basically believe Jesus is not just the Son of God. He's not the Son of God at all. He's just some prophet, just some regular dude who's used by God as a prophet. That's the perception that people at that time had of Jesus. Note that he's, they don't think he's the gentle Jesus, the meek, the mild. They don't think he's the Jesus that is cozy, comforting friends and little children but rather thinking of him as one of those wild prophets of the ancient times who stood up to wicked, rebellious kings, giving him God's word. That's who they think, he, they think he's like one of those. I think it's interesting that they say that he is like one of the prophets because some of that same thinking still exists today, that Jesus might just be a prophet. I mean, interestingly enough, People today still think Jesus simply as a prophet, but a little different prophet perhaps than maybe existed then. Douglas Sean O'Donnell observes this. 
like most people today, the people here have good thoughts about Jesus, just not precisely the right thoughts. The people saw Jesus as a prophet. To them, he was like a lion. All prophets have a roar about them. And Jesus roared against injustice. Jesus turned over the tables of hypocrisy. To them, he was a lion. That is partly true. To people today, he is the opposite, a lamb. Jesus is viewed as a meek social reformer, a gentle moralist, a wise teacher, or a sympathetic healer. He was that, but not only that. He was a lamb, but also a lion. He was a prophet, but also the Christ, the lamb slain, the lion-like ruling king. I like the words of O'Donnell because I think they're spot on. That people today really have a lot of confusion. They still exist. Confusion still exists today about who Jesus truly is. You don't believe it? Walk out later and find someone and ask him who Jesus is. You might get the answer, Son of God. You might not. They might tell you he's simply a prophet. But people in the world today still have this confusion. It still exists, as it did then, of who Jesus is. Which then prompts him, of course, to take the trip to Caesarea Philippi and ask the two questions to the disciples. Who do people say that I am? And then he asks them also, after he hears them say, who do people think he is? He gets more direct and asks them, who do you say that I am? Remember, school's in session for disciples. It's a teaching moment. It's time for Jesus to shape, mold, and form his disciples even further. So Jesus asked them now directly. He's got the answer for the general population. Now he wants specific to the twelve. Who do you say that I am? And notice who steps up for the group and begins to speak. It's good old Peter. I mean, I, I admire Peter. I mean, sometimes Peter can be rash and bold and foolhardy. But here, when he's asked a question as he steps up to be the spokesman for disciples, he gets it right. The question is, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great answer, Peter. I mean, you nailed it. You got it right. No foolhardiness now. I mean, he did it. I mean, it's precisely who Jesus is. The 12 was asked the question. Peter's the one that steps up. Jesus asked them, But who do you? Who do you? Say that I am. And I imagine Peter answering the question not rather quietly, kind of muttering in his breath, well, you know, you're the you're Christ, Son of God. I see Peter doing something like this. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Like, you know, just kind of emphatic about it. And he's right. That's exactly, precisely who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the Greek, the word order is slightly different. Peter would have answered this way according to the Greek text. You are the Son of God, the living one. 
which is completely true. I mean, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he still is alive today. He has risen from the grave. He has defeated death, and he lives and dwells in our hearts today. Yes, Jesus is alive. Amen? Jesus is alive. That's who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. But consider this also. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the earthly Christ. 2 Samuel 7, the expected anointed king of the house of David who would rule over God's people. He is the heavenly son of man whose universal rule over all people, all nations, will be without an end. Daniel chapter 7 refers to it. Everlasting dominion. Indestructible kingdom. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son in whom we must take refuge for our faith, as mentioned in Psalms chapter 2. Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is the Christ. Three different melodies, if you will, that form together one trumpet blast that Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, Peter didn't say all that, but Peter answered it precisely and correctly as he needed to. The disciples were asked the question by the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered for the group, but Peter answered the most important question of their lives. And he answered it correctly. He said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a claim, it's a fact, it's an attribute, it's a characteristic that only Jesus can make. It's the fourth and final attribute in our series to prepare our hearts for a very special birth we have occurring this Friday. We celebrate it each and every December 25th of each year. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. It's only Jesus, and it's all about him and only him. We got some gifts over here later that children are going to receive. You're going to receive a gift later as you begin to leave. That's just to be able to show our love for one another. But imagine the most perfect gift given to this world, wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger. The gift for all the world. The gift that was given to us that we celebrate. It's Jesus' birthday. We should be giving something to him, not taking something or giving anything in exchange. It should be all about him. He is the son of God. He is the Christ. The most unique attribute that no one else can claim. Now, of course, in the text, Matthew goes on from here and 
begins to tell us information more about Peter and the church and the hell gates don't prevail against it, all those kind of things. But we're almost out of time for today, so we'll have to set that aside for another discussion another day. But yet, the disciples have answered the question that is most important for all of us, especially as we inch closer and closer to Christmas. Because we should be asking ourselves precisely the same thing that Jesus asked the question to his disciples. Who do you, who do you say that I am? In short, basically we could say that the most important question to all of us today is who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? In just a matter of a few days, we celebrate that birth. I have told you before in a previous message, a guy once come to me and said, what's so special about this day? It's just December 25th. It's just another day. Well, to some extent, I guess that could be true. I mean, December 25th is another day. But it's not just another day. It's the day that we designate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, there's some debate among scholars and people who argue over this. Is that really the day? that Jesus born truly on the 25th of December? And how would they know? So yeah, there is some debate about whether that is the day. But I don't get hung up on specifics and details to whether that is the day. What I look forward to is a time in which we honor that birth. A time in which we recognize the Savior of the world came and was born and lived among us. I mean, I'm okay with December 25th maybe not being the exact day. I'm okay with December 25th being the day then we select for the celebration. But also recognize this then, that after that day, whatever day that truly was, the world has never been the same. And it never will be. The day that Jesus came, God came to earth through his son, the virgin birth through Mary, the world never will be the same. And it should be a life-changing moment. It was a life-changing moment for many, and it still should be a life-changing moment for every one of us. It should define who we are. We call ourselves followers of Christ. We call ourselves Christians. We should be calling ourselves disciples. So Jesus speaking directly to all of us, who do you say that I am? And our answer should be just like Peter. You are the Christ, the son, the living God. Truly, you are. And if we sincerely believe that, it should be a life-changing moment for every one of us. For me personally, my life-changing moment occurred shortly after my dad was diagnosed with cancer. More specifically, my life-changing moment occurred on May 28th of 2001. I was 38 years old on that day of my birthday. Memorial Day weekend, 2001. I walked the aisle to accept Jesus Christ to my Lord and Savior. That was the day that changed my life. That was the day of my defining moment. 
when is or when was your defining moment? What day did your life begin to change? What day did you truly put Jesus Christ as the most important thing in your life? That's the day we're talking about. That's the day that we need to have because we are disciples. It has changed our life. Accepting Jesus Christ has changed our life. And listen, accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Son of the living God, the Christ, will alter and change your life forever. It should not be the same as it once was. Your life should be radically different than the years it used to be. Yeah, I had a prior life. I used to be a plant manager. I used to do all these horrible things. But that was then, and this is now. This is who I am now. This is who you are now. A defining moment. A life-altering change occurred when you accepted Christ. Give him all the glory. It's his birthday. It's his celebration. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about him. Christ was born. Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord, and the message you've given for us to hear today. We look forward to the celebration that will occur this week. Perhaps it's not right, Lord, that we exchange gifts and celebrate in that manner. It's an expression of love we have for one another. And maybe even, Lord, an appreciation of the fact that you, that you, Lord, has given to all of us, the most special, precious gift we could ever receive has been given to us. And we're very thankful for it. Today, we look at our final characteristic and find that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son. Also, how thankful we should be. Thank you, God, for sending your Son into this world for all of us. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a gift. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. Let's receive this gift. Listen to heart. Truly treasure today. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.